You are listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active, performance-minded women. I am your host, Celine Yeager. Each week, I bring you advice from athletes, scientists, researchers, and other experts to help you feel and perform your best, no matter what your hormones are doing. This show is a production of Live Feisty Media. Hello, hello, strong, feisty women. First, I would like to take a moment and thank you all for the hearts and the stars and the ratings and sharing the show. We have cracked the top 100 health and fitness podcasts in the U.S. and Canada, which when you consider how many general health and fitness podcasts there are in North America, is a big deal. So I just wanted to take this second and thank you all. Okay, so this week we are talking structural health, specifically our connective tissues, our joints, and the musculoskeletal system. Because not a week goes by that I don't hear from someone in the membership or in the Hit Play Not Pause Facebook group who is struggling with aches, pains, niggles, and injuries that they never had before they entered the menopause transition. So I called up Dr. Katherine Ackerman, who is a sports medicine physician, endocrinologist, and the medical director of the Female Athlete Program in the Sports Medicine Division at Boston Children's Hospital. We dig into all of the research, and often the lack thereof, as well as the complex role that our sex hormones play in the connective tissue and joint health, as well as what happens during the menopause transition that can jeopardize that. And of course, we talk about how to keep those joints and ligaments happy and healthy, as well as other sports-related advice that she has gleaned during her long career specializing in female sports medicine. Along with being a sports medicine specialist, Kate is a former national team lightweight rower, chair of the U.S. Rowing Medical Commission, member of the World Rowing Medical Commission, and she still gets out on the water herself when she gets a chance. There's a lot of good advice in this one. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. All right, before we get to it, quick reminder to head on over to feistymenopause.com and subscribe to my weekly blog if you haven't already. Each Thursday, we bring you the latest on health and fitness and hormones, so please check that out. As always, you can find us at Feisty Menopause on Instagram and Facebook. You can join our private Hit Play Not Pause Facebook group and be part of our conversations there. I have an email. If you'd like to reach me, I am at hitplaynotpause at lifeisty.com. We have the Hit Replay Podcast Guide subscription service where you get a write-up on each week's show dropped directly into your inbox every Wednesday afternoon. That's on feistymenopause.com as well. As always, if you like the show, please share it with your friends on your socials. It continues to grow. Things are growing great. I love you. Thank you. And I really appreciate it. All right. Quick thanks to Bonafide for their continued support of the show. They not only offer vaginal health products like Reverie, which everybody knows I love for staying comfortable in the saddle on those long bike rides, but they also have a really lovely skin and hair system, I think it's pretty new, called Sylvessa, that I've been enjoying quite a bit. I am not a big beauty product kind of woman, but my face really takes kind of a beating in the elements out there, so I do like to show it some love, and I can definitely feel the difference. So, thanks, Bonafide. All right. Enough of me, let's have a word or two about those awesome sponsors and get on with the show. As a lifelong runner and cyclist, I am stoked to announce that Tifosi Optics has come on as a podcast sponsor. The beauty of Tifosi sports glasses is that they hit all the marks. They are shatterproof polycarbonate, so the lenses not only reduce glare, but also offer scratch resistance and complete eye protection. They stay put. 
They have little hydrophilic rubber nose pads that actually get more grippy the more you sweat. So they stay secure and don't slide down your face even when you're running in sauna-like conditions. No matter what sport you do, they have a shade for your activity, including tennis, fishing, pickleball, running, cycling, and just hanging out at the beach. And they are super reasonably well-priced, which is very hard to find in a sea of overpriced eyewear. And they just look freaking rad. So head on over to tifosioptics.com and use the code FM, capital F, and capital M, like feisty menopause, number 20, FM20, to get 20% off your order today. I'll put a clickable link in the show notes to make it a snap. Musculoskeletal health is everything during menopause. Everyone knows how much I love Joint Health Plus from Prevenex, which has helped me get back to distance running after arthritic toes stopped me in my tracks. Now they have a product that has become my go-to for muscle strength and recovery, Muscle Health Plus. Muscle Health Plus contains all the key ingredients we talk about on this show, like creatine monohydrate, essential amino acids, and branched-chain amino acids, plus even more cutting-edge ingredients like HMB and estrogen that are scientifically shown to increase muscle growth, recovery, and strength. I use it every day during my early morning lifting sessions, and there's no question that it helps my power during those workouts and my recovery after. Plus, I love having everything I need from the best high-quality ingredients in one reasonably priced shake. I've also heard from fellow users who have had bloating or GI upset in the past from creatine that haven't had any of that with Muscle Health Plus. I make my shake with almond milk and espresso, but it's also good with ice-cold water, which makes the flavor really pop. As always, you can get 15% off your first order with the code HIPPLAY, all caps, one word, at Prevenex.com. That's HIPPLAY, all caps, one word, at Prevenex.com. Do your muscles a favor and head on over and get some today. Good sleep. The one thing that sets you up for a great workout and a good day is quality sleep. We talk about it all the time here on the show, which is why I'm stoked to have Lagoon Sleep as a new sponsor. Because one of the most overlooked tools in a great sleep toolbox is the thing you literally rest your head on eight hours a night, your pillow. A quality pillow is everything. Otherwise, you end up tossing, turning, punching, and folding your pillow, waking up with neck pain, and all the stuff that happens when your pillow doesn't meet your personal comfort needs. Say hello to the most comfortable sleep you've ever had with Lagoon. They start you out with a two-minute personalized pillow quiz and then pair you with your perfect pillow. I got the Otter, a cooling adjustable pillow that is perfect for side sleepers who run warm at night like I do. It is a dream. It's fully adjustable, so I was able to get the perfect loft and support, and the cooling feature is everything. As someone who turned into a furnace every evening before menopause, I appreciate that the Otter is stuffed, with shredded gel-infused memory foam, which instead of trapping heat from my neck and head, draws it away and dissipates it. It's truly delightful. I'm a good sleeper, and Otter's taken it to the next level with both support and cooling. Put my head down, good night, Irene. My aura ring confirms what little tossing and turning I was doing is gone. The beauty of the pillow quiz is you can get the perfect pillow that you need to and make your sleep the best sleep you can have. Go to lagoonsleep.com slash hit play and take the two minute quiz to find your perfect match and then use the code hit play all caps one word for 15% off your first purchase. Sweet dreams. For decades, running shoes have been researched, tested and designed for men. 
brands have relied on the shrink it and pink it approach to sell male shoes to female customers. That's why we are stoked to be working with Hedda's. Hedda's designs athletic footwear for women that elevates performance, safety, and style. Hedda's has unlocked the science behind women's biomechanics through dedicated research and creates better shoes for women's performance. Some of Hedda's special features include a lower ankle collar to reduce rubbing on women's ankle bones, a breathable mesh toe box to allow for ventilation and accommodate female toe shape, a more narrow and reductive heel cup to reduce heel slippage and take pressure off the Achilles, a rounded instep that creates a snug fit through the middle to match the curvature of a woman's foot and supercritical foam and a PBEX plate in the midsole to keep our legs going when the going gets tough. Hedda's has three shoe models designed for different sessions, the Alma Cruise for your long runs, the Alma Tempo for training days, and the Alma Speed for pushing the pace. I've been running in the Alma Tempos, and they are a pleasure to train in. You can get your own pair of Hedda's at Hedda's.com and use the code FEISTY20, that's all caps, FEISTY20, for 20% off. Check it out today. We'll put a clickable link in the show notes to make it a snap. Okay. Kate, well, thank you so much for joining us on our show today. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So before we get into the meat of it, I always like to talk a little bit about um, my guest history themselves, especially when they're athletic. And in doing a little research on you, I saw that you were quite a bit of a rower. So could you talk a little bit about your personal history? Sure. Yes. I was one of those late bloomers. I walked onto the Cornell rowing team and I was not good. And eventually I figured it out and really enjoyed coming from this musical theater background to actually becoming a true athlete. And um, I've been a lifelong athlete since. So after rowing in college, I became a lightweight rower, was on the U.S. team and as a lightweight. And now I'm the chair of the U.S. Rowing Medical Committee and on the World Rowing Medical Committee. So I get to work with athletes all day long. Wow, that's amazing. And are you still, do you get in the water yourself? Do you still row? I do. Um, I live in Boston, so I sort of have a requirement that I can only live in places near water where I can row. And I'm either out there in my single or I'm out there in something we affectionately know as the mommy quad. So I row with three other women amongst the four of us. We have 10 children. And so we have this quad of women who are all working full time and full time mothers as well. And it's part of our sanity is to be able to meet up every week and get to row together. That is really cool. And I'm imagining that's like when the birds first start chirping, you're out oh, of yeah, the water. It's obnoxiously early. Um, <laughs> that's why I only do it with my buddies once a week because we're out there in the dark. Um, but that's when it works with people's um, kids' schedules and works with the work schedules. So you do what you got to do. Yep. I do a lot of Dawn Patrol on my bicycle. I completely, <laughs> under- completely understand that. Um, I also saw that you have been a volunteer at the Boston Marathon for a long time, since like 2007, and you oversee electrolyte testing and hyponatremia screening, that you've lectured at Ironman Kona World Championships. And I was part, un- unknowingly at the time, of a, of a study on hyponatremia at Ironman Louisville in 2008. And I also, we've had guests on this show. One of them was in a coma for like four days after a Jamaican marathon. And that was back in the days when we told people drink and drink some more and drink before you're thirsty and keep drinking. And I'd I'd love to hear a bit more of like what you've learned in your time in that capacity. 
Yes. So I got the honor of becoming, you know, in charge of the electrolyte testing and helping with the hyponatremic cases um, because I have this training in sports medicine and endocrinology. And so really a lot of this is driven by various hormones. There are a lot of different hormonal pathways that can lead to um, activating antidiuretic hormone or suppressing antidiuretic hormone. And um, so that's how that became a bit of my niche. And it's really changed over time in terms of how athletes are approaching these ultra endurance, endurance events or marathons. Um, yeah, like, just like you said, we used to tell people to hydrate, drink past thirst. You can never have too much. Well, you absolutely can have too much fluid and it doesn't have to just be water. It can be those sports drinks because those drinks have less sodium than the blood level. So they are hypotonic solutions that you're grabbing to drink as you hydrate along the course. So there have been changes in race venues because we're all more educated about this. So now those those aid stations or the hydration stations are more spread apart to minimize the likelihood of somebody overhydrating. We also know that um, sometimes people's thirst mechanisms aren't really aligned with what kind of level of fluid they should have in their body. So you can't always trust thirst. In general, we say drink to thirst. Uh, we definitely don't want people drinking past thirst, but really the best way for people to manage this now is to do what they're going to do on race day in practice. So one of the simple things people can do is get on a scale before they go for a run. And when they come back from their long run, see how much they weigh. If they drank a lot, um, they definitely should not have gained weight. So they're only trying to replace the fluid with the hydration they do during the run. They should never gain weight during a race or during a practice. A little bit of weight loss because of dehydration is okay. Too much obviously is a problem, but never should anybody gain weight during racing. So a lot more of our athletes realize this and they're practicing more. And so I'm happy to say we're seeing fewer and fewer cases of hyponatremia in these marathon events. That is really great to hear. And I, I had heard at least way back when I started writing about it, that women were more susceptible to it. Is that actually true? It is true. And we're still trying to figure out all the different reasons why. Um, so, so the people who are most susceptible, male and female, tend to be the people who are slower. So they have more time to hydrate and they may not be sweating as much. So a lot of our charity runners and people who are over a four hour marathon, um, certainly there are likely some hormonal components to this, uh, that are only seen more often in women. Um, but we're trying to tease out the path, the pathways. Um, there was a, or is a researcher named Tamara Hugh Butler, who's done a lot of work on this and is trying to tease out with all of the different hormonal changes. What is the pathway that's driving it? And we see a lot of correlations, but we don't see the same direct pathway in everybody. So there's probably a genetic predisposition for certain people as well. Um, like I said, some people have different antidiuretic hormone secretion, and sometimes it's inappropriately secreted. Um, and so antidiuretic would cause you to hold on to fluid and that would drive the sodium level down. Um, people that are taking a lot of NSAIDs, those anti-inflammatories, that can be a risk factor. Uh, so there's a few different things, but the exact pathway in every person is still something we're trying to determine. People used to take more of those too. Do you remember the whole vitamin I campaign where people oh, yeah. used to, oh my Lord, just take it prophylactically? That was a thing. People would have baggies of it. I used to race with a guy who crushed it into his water bottles for 24 hour mountain bike races. I was like, that is not good. <laughs> just like, that's don't do that. Like, yeah. That's not good for you. Yeah. So I, I, I wonder if that's part of 
Yeah, people, there's different stories now. I mean, there's a lot of debate about inflammation, you know, how much inflammation is enough. We don't want to take complete anti, we don't want to take anti-inflammatories around the clock for multiple reasons, for the effect that they might have on your stomach or the effect that they're going to have on tissue healing. Um, and certainly now we know this effect as well as correlating with hyponatremia. Um, so, you know, a lot of the things that we thought were sort of known truths have really been flipped on their, on their side. And, and we're, we're questioning them and teaching other things as more research comes out. Yeah, that's, that's great. So let's get into to some of the crux of, of what I, what I reached out to you for, because I would love to speak a little broadly on ligament physiology as it pertains to women, you know, as, as you know, we have a very, very active group. We have rock climbers, ultra runners, CrossFit people, the whole gamut. And I hear easily weekly from women who are like, you know, I never really was injury prone and I've hit this menopause transition thing. And now all of a sudden I've got niggles, I've got injuries, you know, I've got all this stuff that I never had before. Um, you know, and I, I digging into PubMed, I'm like, okay, there's stuff going on here, but I'd love to hear, uh, you just talk a bit about like the role that our sex hormones do have on our connective tissue and joint health. And like what happens during this transition when they start fluctuating and declining. Such a great question. And you're going to be disappointed in my answer. We need more research. Um, so one of the big things that I'm always on my soapbox about is that we need to be studying women more, as I'm sure you've probably said on this podcast, and many of your guests have. Um, so much research is done in young men, young white males. And so we've taken over the years, we've extrapolated a lot of the work that's been done in men and we've applied it to women and that doesn't really seem to be working. So we have questions even around the menstrual cycle in young premenopausal women in terms of what's happening with their ligaments, what kind of effects are estrogen and progesterone and relaxin having on the ligament. And even the studies, when we're talking about females, some of them have only been done in animal models. So if we look at, so if we first talk about women before they go through menopause, um, we know that premenopausal women have increased ligamentous laxity. So there's more movement of the ligament. That's why one of the reasons that we have this tendency to tear our ligaments more often or have an ACL injury, for example. Um, but other things are, our movement patterns are different. So is it the quality of the ligament or is it how we're moving? Um, but then there've been animal models. So we know that estrogen and relaxin increase ligament laxity and they decrease the load to failure, but that was done in rabbits. Um, we know that testosterone indirectly increases ligament stiffness by decreasing relaxin receptors, but that was done in rodents. So what does that tell us about women? It's hard to say because we haven't been doing enough of these studies actually looking at women. Um, there was a study that looked at, um, relaxin and ACL injury. And this was actually done in people. So it was a prospective study of collegiate female athletes, and they measured relaxin on days six to eight of the luteal phase of the menstrual cycle. So if you think about follicular and luteal, it's the first few days of the luteal after ovulation. And when relaxin was over six picograms per ml, it was linked to four times an increase in ACL injury. So it was thought that there was more sliding of the ligament of the fibrils, there was more creep. And so there was more laxity. So that's one of the studies that they've done. Um, but in other things, you know, when you talk about what does estrogen do and what does progesterone do, it's, it's very confusing. So we think that estrogen 
increases or decreases collagen synthesis, depends on the study. Um, but we know that estrogen plus relaxin seems to decrease collagen synthesis. And then when you look at progesterone and testosterone together, that seems to increase collagen synthesis, but then estrogen relaxin decrease collagen cross-linking. So I think you, <laughs> it's just such a mess. And that's in, that's in people who have estrogen and progesterone. So then you take those away and you look at postmenopausal women and it's a bit of a crapshoot um, because we're thinking estrogen might be beneficial. It might not. But if you talk then about the the practicalities of how we women feel as we go through menopause and then postmenopausal women, um, we feel a little stiffer. We feel like we're not responding as well. And part of that is because estrogen likely has different effects on bone and on ligament and on tendon. So one thing we do know is estrogen is, a, is very important for bone. So when you don't have estrogen, you can have a loss of bone. You get this osteopenia and osteoporosis. Um, but there may be times that maybe the lack of estrogen is a bit supportive for the ligament or the tissue for the tendon properties. So we really need to be studying our postmenopausal women much more and women in general. Yeah. And perimenopause is a whole other can of worms, right? Because right, hormones are all over the place. Yeah. So one of the things that we're trying to do is just standardize how we study women and make sure that if there are so few studies being done, that at least we're doing them really well. And we're kind of using the same playbook. Um, and I'll jump in here and make a shout out to one of our amazing donors. So I was lucky enough a couple of years ago to be contacted um, by a philanthropist and her team and basically got pulled into being part of something called the Wusai Human Performance Alliance. And this is six different institutions, Stanford, Harvard, Oregon, UCSD, Sulk, um, Kansas. All of these institutions were important to our donor. And so we're all looking at human performance and, and different things um, about that. So I'm a clinician, I'm a, a translational researcher, I study humans, other folks are engineers, or they're basic scientists. And I also run a female athlete program at Boston Children's. So my job is really to keep making sure that we're studying women in all the studies that we are always considering different sexes in our in our groups, and also to get some of the low lying fruit, like let's just study women in general in some topics that haven't been addressed before. And so with that, um, in getting this $220 million opportunity, we're all dividing and conquering and collaborating. And so some of our colleagues have written up some guidelines about, okay, if we're gonna study women, let's define the menstrual cycle in this way. Let's call the different phases this, let's test on this day and use ovulation kits. And so then when we move forward and do research, we're all speaking the same language and we can actually combine the results so that we can get to the answers faster. Yeah. And it doesn't surprise me that it becomes a, you know, a, a, as you're talking, I'm like, that's amazing. That's great. And then I'm thinking, and then we want to look at women on um, birth control and how many different elements of birth control there are. And do we want to talk about hormone therapy? And oh my goodness, there's so many different options for hormone therapy. Um, you know, it, it's, there's a lot to try to consider. Yeah. There's actually a great paper that's free online um, that was written by one of our colleagues in the Alliance. Um, it's in Frontiers in Physiology. Mm -hmm. Your author is Keith Barr, B-A-A-R. And he talks about estrogen on the musculoskeletal performance and injury risk. And that is just a great summary. He published it, um, I think it was January, 2019. And it's a great summary of kind of what we know and what we don't know and what work needs to be done. And then, you know, kind of 
highlights some of the stuff that I just talked about. Um, but when we talk about birth control and how to study it or studying women in their cycle or studying postmenopausal women, we just have to be really clear and describe the study extremely well. When people say, oh, some of the people are on, on the pill and they don't take that into consideration then in the results, to me, that's just then a crapshoot. You can't be studying hormones and say, and study outcomes and say some people are on the pill, some weren't, or not clarify what pill is. Is it a mini pill? Is it progesterone only? Is it a combined oral contraceptive pill where the dosage is different? So I think the big take home is that these studies need to be done just in a very regimented way with clarification and common definitions. Yeah. Yeah. I hundred percent agree. So the, speaking of hormones, you know, the research on menopausal hormone therapy or hormone replacement therapy, whatever nomenclature you want to use is also all over the map. Um, it does seem to be, I mean, it's FDA approved for, you know, bone health, a uh, little less clear what impact it has on musculoskeletal function. Uh, do you have thoughts on the pros cons of their, of hormone therapy in, in the realm of musculoskeletal function for these women in this audience? I think this is the question my friends and I all want to get to, you know, I was born in 72, I'm 50, you know, 50th anniversary of title nine. How do we not have these answers yet? So I grew up with my mom participating in the women's health initiative and the nurses. Oh, wow. Study. And I remember her being really proud to go to those visits and recruiting her friends to go to those visits. And then in the early 2000s, um, a lot of this stuff was halted. And, you know, with the Women's Health Initiative, it was halted because they found that women who started hormone replacement therapy much later had an increase in cardiovascular events. And that caveat wasn't clarified well enough at that time. It was just scary. So they made sense to stop the study till they could figure out more about it. Um, but now that we've unpacked that and the researchers have looked at the data in different ways, they realize, okay, well, there's not an increase in cardiovascular events with people who are low risk to begin with and start hormonal replacement early on perimenopause, postmenopausally. It was really the women who weren't on hormones for 10 years and then were started. So there's been a complete shift for a long time. Everybody was scared to take hormones appropriately because of these very large studies. And now there's a shift in the community saying, it's actually okay. As long as you talk to your doctor, you've gone through your risk factors, you don't have a high risk for cardiovascular or breast cancer, all these other indications, um, there could be a lot of benefit. And unfortunately the, the focus when we talk about menopause typically is on bone only or on symptoms only. And I think we're talking to an audience of people who are very physically active and want to continue to be physically active and not feel horrible after a hard workout and want to figure out ways to recover faster. And so there could truly be benefit from hormonal re replacement for that reason. Um, what dose it should be, who the heck knows? Those studies haven't been done. We haven't looked at the different dosages of HRT um, in, this, in this realm in, in terms of musculoskeletal benefit. Uh, just recently, we did a big lit review to kind of get started. Well, where do we want to study postmenopausal women? So we looked at the literature to say, all right, if we define an, a, a postmenopausal athlete as somebody who works out at least three times a week and is racing in some capacity, even if it's just once a year. So like if I worked out three times a week and I'm going to row in head of the Charles, I'm defined as an athlete. So not a huge, hugely high bar. And so we looked at all of the studies that were available, looking at women who were peri or postmenopausal, and we looked at health outcomes and we looked in, in relation to exercise and we looked at 
if they took hormone replacement or not, if that was mentioned in the paper and also performance and training, if they had performance and training outcomes. So the first bad news was we only had about 22 papers that met this criteria um, and none of them were that great. Then when we looked at performance and training, there was absolutely nothing on performance. There was one on, on training and they simply did a survey of power lifters post and in that group of power lifters, there were postmenopausal women and the outcome about training was, Hey, they were training less now that they were postmenopausal because of the very symptoms they were feeling. So, okay, that's it about training. <laughs> okay. And you get to yeah. all the health stuff and, you know, it was all over the map. Some people didn't even mention if the people are on HRT or not. I mean, that's a big factor. And then if they did say, oh, has been on it, they didn't say how long they were on it. They didn't say how many years postmenopausal they were. So we really need to get more information. Otherwise we're all kind of making this up and we're really making a lot of inferences based on prior work in the wrong population. Yeah. Yeah. I know those, those are good. Those are good points, but to, to drive, to be clear, um, if somebody, and this, I haven't actually asked someone this question before, but is there a relationship between bone health and some of these injury things that we're talking about? Um, well, it depends on the injury. So certainly if somebody has poor bone health, they're going to be at a higher risk for stress fracture. Um, so we know that, uh, we know that also estrogen seems to have a positive effect on muscle in terms of postmenopausal women who are on HRT, they will likely get more of a benefit from the power lifting or the strength training that they're doing. Um, so there, are, there are things that involve the stress on the bone, if the muscle is stronger, but the bone is weak, that's going to be an issue. Um, so in that sense, we know that estrogen can have a positive effect. Um, when we talk about does osteoporosis, does low bone density cause a ligament injury? Probably not. So then moving like to what women can, should be doing in this time of life, um, to best protect, improve, preserve, you know, their musculoskeletal function. Uh, you know, you and I had talked offline previously about maybe there's some long time movement patterns that need to be addressed. Maybe like, as you do lose some muscle during this transition, it, you're not as stable because you're losing muscle. Like, are there ways that they can address some of this stuff to protect themselves? you know, irrespective of whether or not they go down that hormone therapy road, which may or may not help. Exactly. Yeah. And I think this is the big take-home point. You know, I think as we get older, we've probably had injuries as athletes. We probably have that nagging thing. Um, for me, it's my SI joints. I have a little bit of scoliosis. My SI joint is very lax. I have hyperlaxity in general. I'm very flexible. Um, so, and I've torn my hamstring from a dumb dance move where I jumped into a split way beyond the years that I should have been doing that. So I have this, 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 um, hamstring that I have to be a little bit careful about. I got to stabilize my SI joint. Um, I have to wear a little hit lift in my shoe to help with my back. Like these are all the things I already know, regardless of my hormonal makeup that I got to attend to. So I can't just jump in a boat. If I haven't been doing my core exercises, I haven't been doing all that boring core stability stuff. That's so important. So I think as, as we get older, we all just need to be smarter about the training outside of the stuff that we really like to do. And this is where we can take the time and do certain strength training. We can do certain stretching. We can do certain things to just kind of make sure that we're in the best balance that we can be. And 
as we're older, we have hopefully more resources to do that. You know, when I was in my early twenties, it was no big deal to throw on my sneakers and go for a run or go jump in my boat. And I felt indestructible. I can't do that anymore, but thank goodness. I now make a little bit more money and I can go see a PT or I can get a personal trainer to just double check things. So I think if you have the resources, one of the best places to spend them is on yourself and to really think about what are the things you need to do to be in the best condition and have the best movement pattern so that you don't constantly re-injure yourself. That's going to be a good first move. Yeah. And, and it might not be a bad time to get a movement assessment, right? Like I, it's I, in, in talking to you and some, like I've discovered on the show that there is some urinary incontinence issues that are actually due to some of these core instabilities, you know, that you wouldn't even put those two and two together. So it seems to me like might not be a bad idea to get like a checkup, you know, at this time going into this time of life. Well, the checkup, the functional movement can be great at any time in life. When we see kids, when I see adolescents who come in with stress fractures, I'm going to ask about things like REDS, relative energy deficiency in sport. I'm going to ask about their nutrition. Um, But if they've had multiple stress injuries and we've done a bone workup and the bone density looks pretty good and the nutrition is good, sometimes they might just be running funny. You know, they might be doing a lot of pronating. They might do a lot of pelvic drop. They might have really heavy heel striking. And so when we do a gait assessment, there are things that we can work on from a strength and a movement pattern that can actually help prevent the future injury. So that's always a good idea. And it's a good idea when you get recurrent injuries to, to double check and, and get a reassessment, even if you've had, had one in the past. There are so many recovery tools out there right now from like the squeezy legs to the icy squeezy legs to, you know, ice, ice baths, the Theraguns. Do you have thoughts on any of those for, you know, accelerating or promoting recovery? I think some of it is a bit trendy and none of it is great research. Um, there's things that just make you feel good. Uh, certainly, um, some of the simple ones that you're not going to get in a lot of trouble for things like the Theragun, you know, that can feel really good. Um, doing some light stretching, using things that dig into your IT bands and your quads and your hamstrings just to kind of loosen things up from seizing up. Um, in general, we say it's good to you know, warm up more than we used to. So really loosen up before you're going to go do some lifting and it's okay to cool down or even sit in a hot tub afterwards. If you're not actively injured, I think there's a lot of stuff back and forth about like, should you go to these cryotherapy places? You know, is that the, is that the golden ticket? We don't know. You know, I think anything too much is probably not as great as they say it is. It just feels good for a while or it feels horrible. So you feel like it's working. Um, But we need more research on those things to see what happens when you do them routinely. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And it echoes a lot of what past guests have said. I, I think I think to put a, a bow on it, just taking care of your foundational strength, your core, doing strength training to maintain that muscle mass. I mean, a lot of our ultra runners and our runners have talked about how they would be injured and injured and injured. And then they started strength training and then they don't, they're not injured and injured anymore. Well, when you strength train, also your body can keep up with what you're trying to do. What often happens, even if you do a functional movement screen, if someone does that for a very short amount of time, they might be running great, but what you're not watching is how they run after an hour. You know, these people that are doing long distance stuff, their technique is falling apart because they're feeling weaker and they can't maintain that distance. So they might not be fit enough to actually do the same technique from beginning to end. And it's obviously towards the end when people are falling apart and they're more likely to get an injury. 
And I imagine that we really have to respect our recovery days, right? Like, don't go out for your recovery run and be like, oh, I just did 10 miles on my day off because it was really nice out. Um, I always tell my athletes that training and being an athlete isn't just about the workout. It's about all the other things that go with that. It's about the recovery. It's about the nutrition. It's about the stress level. It's about sleep. All of those need to be part of training. And if you're you know, staying up all night, then you probably shouldn't work out the next day. You know, if you didn't have time to sleep, that sleep is important for you to perform your exercise as well. If you didn't fuel, if you didn't eat, you're not supporting the exercise. So all of that is part of it. Yeah. And that, that leads me into another issue that's tangential to this. I wanted to ask you about, because I know low energy availability is a big thing in this audience. A lot of women, um, they, they just confess up to it. They're like, they start putting on some weight or they lose muscle or their body composition shifts. And the first thing they do is just start eating less. And um, it strikes me that some injuries might be related to that. Absolutely. Now you're talking about my topic for sure. Well, let's talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I work at a pediatric hospital. I see kids and adults and certainly, which is weird in and of itself, but you know, we see kids and we see women across the lifespan, but I do see a lot of adolescents and, and certainly the age group that we see with the adolescent girls who are doing endurance sports or who are doing, um, aesthetic sports, there's a huge, huge proportion of them who are suffering from body image issues and disordered eating. But even looking at athletes who you typically wouldn't put in that category, you might be doing things like hockey, you know, strong, strong women, they also are struggling with disordered eating. So there's already this issue in the adolescent population that is really, really extreme with people not fueling enough. And sometimes it's body image, sometimes it's not awareness, but regardless, it's there. So we're trying to improve the story for the adolescents and saying you have to fuel to do your sport. You have to find the set point where your periods are happening every month because you're eating enough and you're going to find that that's going to make your performance even better. So that is the issue and the point behind relative energy deficiency in sport is it's not just about bone density, but it's about performance. It's about other um, parts of the body. It's about the endocrine system, but also the cardiovascular and the GI and all these things. But a lot of people forget that as women get older, yes, to your point, as we get into this perimenopausal and this menopausal phase, that we have these changes in our body composition. We have this flabbier body because our muscles now are, are disappearing. If we're not doing enough strength training, our metabolisms are slowing down. And so th then women go back to some of those old habits where they're trying to restrict or they're trying to train more. And there's been very little look at the postmenopausal woman who could also have reds, but now we don't have as many signs that we normally would think of because they didn't get their period anyway. So in those women, we still need to be thinking about this and we need to be tracking other markers. And that's really what we're all looking for is biomarkers so that we can help, uh, you know, uh, see this when it's coming. So for somebody who's extremely energy restricted, for example, they'll have a low T3, a type of thyroid hormone that can happen in a premenopausal woman that can happen in a postmenopausal woman. Uh, they might have a really decreased white blood cell count. Uh, they can have their metabolism checked. There are different ways that they can have that assessed by a registered sports dietitian or an exercise physiologist. And they might see that their metabolism has really changed uh, from when they started and then when they became really restrictive. So just because someone doesn't get their period and they're postmenopausal doesn't mean they can't get reds. And we need to be thinking about how to fuel them. And, you know, there's, there's talk about what kind of dietary changes can you make? 
probably there need to be some changes in terms of the ratio and the types of food. You know, we do know that postmenopausal women need to get more protein to maintain their muscle mass. So sitting down and talking with the dietitian to figure out how to make those tweaks, it doesn't mean remove carbs. If anything, we want to make sure that we're eating enough so we don't slow down our metabolism even more. Yeah, no, that's, that is great advice. Is there, are there, I mean, for women who, especially in these ultra, like in their endurance sports, where you see a lot of this sort of playing out, if they are starting to get injured more often, is that something that, is that a flag that should go up for, for if, are they eating enough too? Absolutely. So we know that you get increased injury rates by people who are under fueling. I think we, you know, a lot of the focus that I tend to, to, spend time on is reminding women that if they're taking all this time to work out and to perform and race and, and do all these things that they're excited to spend their time on, if they're putting that much energy into it, into it, they also should spend the energy then take a component of that and go see a dietitian, go see a sports psychologist, go see a PT, go see your doctor, like get your whole team together to help support this thing that you love to do so that you're able to do it in the smartest way that you can. And while we don't have all the answers, a lot of times we have enough answers to at least put them in a better position than they were um, because they haven't really thought about these things. So some of it is very individual, you know, getting a functional movement screen and seeing how somebody is moving. Okay, then you can do physical therapy or you can do personal training to address that. Getting a nutritional assessment along with your training schedule to see, are you fueling appropriately for your training? Getting a coach to look at your training schedule. Is this the right way to get you to where you want to go? We want you to train smarter, not harder. So finding those specialists, I think is really, really key. And of course, not everybody has the ability to pay for five different specialists, but there are resources online, but go to the people that are truly knowledgeable about it, who are certified in those different areas to get the right information. Yeah, that's excellent. Excellent advice. We actually had a session the other night with some of our members and, and one woman was saying like, she really did think she was eating enough and supporting her training, but she was like shy of like a thousand calories. Like she was so underneath and, and the, the nutritionist that was talking to us was like, that is very common. It's very common that women are dramatically under fueling, you know, they might burn 3000 calories a day and are eating 1500, you know, it's. Yeah. yeah. I think people are often surprised by how much they need to fuel because these numbers are foreign to them. We've had adolescent girls who are runners and five feet tall who need five to 6,000 calories. And we've had postmenopausal women who need five to 6,000 calories. Um, there's, and you go on these apps and these different things about losing oh weight and they try to really, really restrict you. Um, so yeah, when you're trying to lose weight, you do need to cut calories or increase output, but subtly not huge dramatic shifts. Otherwise you'd kind of just shut down the whole system. The, the body's going into starvation mode and it's trying to hold on to what it's got. So that's not going to be the answer. The yeah. other thing though, is when you're doing a lot of endurance work, that does suppress your appetite. So it's, it's making the whole situation worse. You're working out so much and now you don't even feel hungry and so you have to eat beyond the hunger cues. You have to eat on schedule according to what you know you need. Yeah, that's great. Great, great advice. I, I do know some of the women and I won't call out the app by name though. I'd really like to, um, that start them at like 1200 as the baseline, you know, so often that comes up as the baseline for women and it's, yeah. I, think I know the app. I know what you're yeah. saying. <laughs> I, I, I know you do. And it's, it's, 
it has tragic consequences. I mean, it's it's bad. I think with so many of these apps, um, it's trying to get people just to be more thoughtful about what they're doing. And it can go in different ways. A, it can overstate what they need to do and basically derail people with bad information. And B, it can also accidentally cause people to perseverate on it. And so while we want people to be aware, we want to just be really careful that this isn't all consuming or, and we want people to just be careful where they're getting the information and, and thinking, do we really need to be doing this? Is it really cookie cutter for all of us? And we just have to be a little skeptical. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So I guess finally, I I saw that you were recently part of a presentation on the impact of menopause on musculoskeletal, endocrine, metabolic, and cardiovascular health and function in female athletes, which is a giant, (laughs) which is a giant topic. Um, I'm wondering what some of your main takeaways from that were. Yeah, unfortunately, you're going to love this answer. We need more research. (laughs) Yeah. And I think it's going to happen because we're really loud and we're motivated. So it will happen. And we just have to keep putting the pressure on the companies to fund the research, on the governments that pay for research. We need to just bug people to get the money and we got to stay enthusiastic about doing the work. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. You're preaching to a very large choir here. You know, if you need... People to volunteer, there's 15,000 or so in our group. <laughs> I- great. And that's and that's how we have to do it. We have to be doing things like crowdsourcing it. So I think as we're starting these studies, I'll definitely be coming back to your audience and saying, all right, we need some people for this prospective study or, hey, we want to send out this survey and find out about your experiences. So all of this is going to be happening in the next year. And I'm excited to build the army so that we can find out these answers together. Well, that's our show. For the next two weeks, we will be on a summer break. But fear not, we will not leave your feed empty. The producers of this show, Feisty Media, have produced a new and limited podcast series for the 50th anniversary of Title IX called Nine, Voices for Title IX. Two of those episodes will be dropped into this feed for the next two weeks for your listening pleasure. So check out those episodes and then go back and listen to the back episodes and the rest of the series wherever you get your podcasts. You've been listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active performance-minded women. I'm your host, Celine Yeager. The show is edited and produced by the strong, talented, and amazing women at Live Feisty Media. Follow us on social media at Feisty Menopause. And please help us spread the word. Screenshot and share this episode on your social media channels with the tag at Feisty Menopause. Share the show with your friends. And please subscribe, like, review, and rate this show wherever you get your podcasts. Word of mouth and good reviews make it easier for other listeners to find. Thanks for listening. And as always, stay feisty. Feisty.